speak to the students there. And uh, we've been talking for many years about bringing Nods here to Central to join us in this series. And so we're very pleased to have you with us. So thank you for joining us today. And please join me in welcoming Oz Guinness. Thank you, Jason. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be here. As Jason said, I was born in China. I was born in North Central China, one of the ancient imperial capitals, and after World War II, my family moved to Nanking. And Nanking had been brutalized in the rape of Nanking. And it had suffered incredible deprivations in the war. And it was immediately threatened by the approaching armies of Lin Bao. So it was very, very difficult circumstances. But you can still see, if any of you have ever been to what's now Nanjing today, you can still see the remains of this incredible imperial city. Because in 1500, it was the capital of the Ming Empire and the capital of what was then the strongest, most powerful, prosperous country on earth. They sent a fleet to Africa, ships four times the size of Columbus's. They sent a million men to build what we now know as the Forbidden City in Beijing. No one was going to rival the Ming Empire. And yet, and yet, as you know, suddenly what they consider the cultural backwater of the western end of the great Asian landmass rose and dominated them and the world for 500 years. You may have read the stories as China began to regain its strength. There were various discussions, basically rather like a more recent book, saying what happened. And there was one famous discussion at the Chinese Academy of the Social Sciences where they asked what had happened and why China was eclipsed by Europe and then the West. And they said, was it guns? No. Was it the Western economy? Partly, but no. Was it the Western rule of law? Partly again, but no. And their final conclusion was it was Western religion. But then Jewish scholars jumped in, rightly, and said that's accurate, but not precise. For the obvious reason that since the fourth century, when the Emperor Theodosius declared Rome officially Christian, Europe had been Christian and had not dominated the world at all. So why had it suddenly, in the 16th century, leapt forward in this way? And the Jewish scholars said, rightly, it was not just the Christian faith in general, but the Reformation in particular. Now, of course, last year was the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, as you good Presbyterians know well. <laughs> but the question is, and many people celebrated the Reformation, I don't mean quite enough, but they always looked at the internal gifts of the Reformation. The rediscovery of the Gospel, the place of Scripture, the place of the lay people, and so on. All of those are incredibly important and fundamental. But there was less celebration and discussion of the impact of the Reformation in creating the modern world. And historians say the Reformation is the single strongest set of ideas which made the modern world, although often in ways despite themselves and ways that might have surprised the reformers themselves. But 
What was it about the Reformation? Well, interestingly, you could boil down the heart of it, it's a much larger discussion, with three C's, and they all touch America crucially. The first, calling. You may know Max Weber said, calling is behind the rise of capitalism. More importantly, though, you can see calling behind the whole notion of the errand into the wilderness in New England. That dynamism, entrepreneurialism, propulsion, as historians put it, that characterizes all that the Puritans brought to this country. The second C is conscience. We can be proud and grateful as followers of Jesus that the first reference to religious freedom comes from a Christian, Tertullian, in the second century. And the second by Lactantius, a Christian writer a little later. And he's very significant because Lactantius was the tutor to the son of the Emperor Constantine. So the famous Edict of Milan was not making the Christian faith official, not at all. It was really the first international law on religious freedom. And Lactantius, Christian writer, probably heavily behind it. But of course, much of the church didn't follow that, more of that later. And it was in the Reformation that you had Roger Williams, Thomas Howells, and then William Penn, Isaac Backus, John Leland, and then people like Thomas Jefferson, James Madison picked up religious freedom. And the Reformation is a key part of the American understanding of freedom of conscience, which is crucially at stake again today. But the third C is the one that few Americans know and realize, but in many ways incredibly relevant to where we are now, and that is covenant, covenant. Because the Exodus notion of covenant became the American notion of constitution. Constitution. And that's what I want to open up in the few minutes we have together. But first of all, think for a minute of covenantalism as a political category. Now, if you take politics 101 or whatever, you immediately get into the Greek and Roman, the classical understanding of politics, monarchy, aristocracy, democracy. In other words, governments. The rule of the one, the monarchy, corrupted into tyranny. The rule of the excellent few, the aristocrats, corrupted into oligarchy. <coughs> and the rule of the people, the many, corrupted into mob rule. And as you know, the Greeks were very clear you don't just choose one of these and stay with it forever. The wheel is always turning. And so there is corruption as time passes. But 50 years or so ago, a great Jewish scholar, Daniel Lazar, put a different series of categories onto the map. Not governments, but the founding and makeup of societies. And if you look at those, you have a different three. You have organic societies, which are linked by blood and kinship, an African tribe or a Scottish clan. Obviously, with modern mobility and so on, there are fewer of those in our world, but very important historically, the organic societies. The second type is the majority category, hierarchical, linked by power and force, often by conquest. In other words, kingdoms, and above all, empires. 
And the third type, covenantal, linked by a common binding agreement of the people, of which there are three very famous ones, the Jews, the Swiss, the Articles of Confederacy, 1291, and of course, the United States. Now, what was it about covenantalism that was so profound in history? Well, first of all, there were obviously other covenants in other nations. We know the Hittite covenants, the Celtic Oath Societies, Alexander the Great's Corinthian League. There were other covenants. Covenants are not unique to the Bible. And of course, within the Bible, there are other covenants apart from Exodus. Supremely, Noah's covenant, which the Lord makes with humanity after the flood. And then, of course, the covenant with Abraham and his family, Genesis 15 to 17. But Exodus stands unique, both in terms of its content and in terms of its influence. It's the first one where God himself is a partner. It's not under God or in the name of God or God holding us accountable. No, God himself is a partner. And it's with the entire people. People often think of America, democracy must come from Athens. You know, the framers were very cherry about Athenian democracy. And in Athens, only 20% of the men could vote, which meant 80% of the men couldn't, and certainly, sorry, no women, no children, and no strangers. It was a very limited franchise, to put it mildly. But in Exodus, you see, the covenant is with everybody. The men, the women, the children, and as Moses says later, it's those of you who are born then, and those of you yet to be born. In other words, it's an intergenerational project of God with all of his people down the generations. And then, of course, the difference was it covered the whole of life. You read the other Middle Eastern treaties and uh, covenants, very narrow. They only cover certain things, usually military and things like that. Whereas the covenant in Exodus covers the whole of life, business, sex, all sorts of things. But those weren't the features that made it so influential. There were three others. And when you hear these, you see how their influence is on us even today. The first is that the covenant was a matter of freely chosen consent says three times in Exodus, it's put before the people and says, all that the Lord says we will do. They sign on. Now, the Exodus covenant's often called a theocracy because that word was used by a Jew himself, Philo. But the rabbis immediately pointed out, they do strongly today, it is not a theocracy. It is technically a nomocracy, the rule of law but the people have a freely chosen consent. And again and again, the Jews point out today, there is no Hebrew word for submission. Obedience as submission. You take Islam. The very essence of the word means submission. They make no bones about it. There's no word like that in Hebrew. The nearest is Shema, to listen or to hear, but it has the idea of not just physical hearing, but of paying focused moral attention and then deliberation and decision. So people choose to sign on. Michael Walzer of Princeton calls it an almost democracy. 
freely chosen consent. That is the origin of the consent of the government, Exodus. The second feature of the covenant, it, it's a morally binding pledge. Again, very, very different from contracts. Contracts are legal, and they're as narrow as you can make them because you only want to be bind at this point, not every point. But the covenant is all-embracing, and it's a morally binding pledge, and that moral dimension that's extra is very, very important. But the third one is the most important, and certainly for us today. It's a matter of reciprocal responsibility of all for all. Think of the three musketeers. All for one, one for all. The Jews were like that thousands of years ago. Every Jew responsible for every Jew. So you see at the heart of it is the very famous verse, which is only comes once in Leviticus. Love your neighbor as yourself. Reciprocal responsibility. But then quite remarkably, again, as the rabbis have always pointed out, that is said once and becomes incredibly powerful down through history. 35 times it says you love or care or look after the stranger. Now, if you think for a minute, the stranger, well, take the Greeks. You read Aristotle. Who should you care for? Aristotle says very clearly, as human beings, we should quote, I'm quoting now, care for people like us. Family looks after the family. Clan the clan, tribe the tribe, the nation the nation. But no outsider. But here you have at the beginning, you love even the stranger. Now, the stranger, not made in our image. He is or she is a stranger. But whoever he or she is, they're still made in God's image. And so you love the stranger too. And that incredible sense of reciprocal responsibility. One rabbi said, there wasn't just one covenant, there was 600,000. Each of the people making a covenant to the Lord and to each other. And another one quickly chimed in, no, you're wrong. There wasn't 600,000, there were 600,000 times 600,000. Work that one out mathematically. In other words, each Jew making a covenant to the Lord and to every other Jew that was there that day. That reciprocal responsibility. Now that, of course, is why the Jews have always said that at the heart of covenantal societies, responsibility and relationship. And as they argue, that means very simply that schooling and relationships are far more important than armies. And you keep a society of faith or freedom going, not by armies first, but by relationships first. And you can see the breakdown, anyway, you go into that where America is today. Now, what was the influence of that on history? Well, obviously, it shaped the Jews. If you think, they had the covenant hundreds of years before they had a king. But more importantly, when they lost the king and lost the monarchy and lost the capital and lost the country and lost the temple, and they were bitterly persecuted and scattered the four corners of the earth, what kept the Jews together? The Torah and the covenant. They described it as a portable homeland wherever they went and 
covenantalism is the secret of the survival of the miracle of the Jewish people. But then, of course, the Reformation. Now, if you think for a minute, the church in the Middle Ages was not covenantal. If you think, as historians say, in the 4th century when Theodosius won and declared Rome Christian, the church unwittingly copied Roman structures, not biblical. In other words, it was, like Rome was, hierarchical. And when hierarchical structures, which are built on power, are corrupted, it was a famous Catholic layman, Lord Acton, who said famously, all power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And he said that as a challenge to a fellow Catholic who was excusing the popes for their corruption. And Acton, who was a great champion of freedom, was pointing out that whenever you have structures that are based on power, they will be corrupted, they will become oppressive. And of course, you had the Inquisition, you had notions like error has no rights, which is horrendous. And you had the false baptism of the Jews and endless things that are really terrible stains in the Christian church that are still hung around our necks today. But they were the churches following not biblical structures, but sadly the structures of Rome. And the Reformation, not immediately, and not fully consistently, but Calvin, Norman Luther, Zwingli, Knox, Cromwell. If you read Cromwell, he said what he was trying to do in the English Revolution, the only direct parallel was Exodus. Now, of course, you know your history. The English Revolution was the lost cause. It failed. But what was the lost cause in England became the winning cause in New England. And you can see that covenantalism well, it fails, say, in Scotland. Think of the Scottish covenanters. You may know the very word whig actually comes from the Scottish word for covenant, which is whigamore, the covenanters. But anyway, in New England, it was at the heart of the churches, it was the heart of marriages, it was the heart of townships, and then it became the heart of the Massachusetts Constitution. And John Adams, who wrote most of the Massachusetts Constitution, which is the oldest surviving written constitution in the world, said he is writing a covenant for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And now we call it a constitution. And of course, that in the 18th century, with a little help from the new science of politics, became the US Constitution, we the people. And you can see the US Constitution is in fact a nationalized, somewhat secularized form of covenant and has put an extraordinary stamp on history. Now, as with any system of government, there are strengths and weaknesses. You look at monarchy, you look at democracy, you look at aristocracy, you can say pluses here, minuses there, and so on. You've got to assess them, weigh them up, and so on. The same is true of covenantalism. Now, even in the Bible, you can see that the covenant in Exodus, not terribly long, afterwards becomes judges. No king in Israel, everyone does what's right in their own eyes. The covenant is broken down. But what are the strengths and weaknesses of covenantalism? Well, mention three. The great strength, historically and theologically, 
It brings together faith and freedom. <laughs> I'm English. If you say that in America, Americans yawn. Words like faith, freedom, family, they just roll off your American tongues as if they're as obvious as the air we breathe. They're not. Do any of you remember reading Tocqueville on Democracy in America? He says in the introduction, for most of history, and obviously he means European history, he's a Frenchman coming from Catholic France, for most of history, those who loved religion fought freedom, and those who loved freedom fought religion. You can capture it in the cry of the French radicals just a little before he came here. You know the famous story Diderot gave this maxim, which went down to the streets in the Jacobin, and their slogan was, we will never be free until we strangle the last king with the guts of the last priest. <laughs> a little gory, but you get the point. <laughs> what you had in France was throne and altar, church and state, one. In collusion, both corrupt, both oppressive, and the revolution did what? Threw off both. Faith and freedom fought each other furiously in the European situation. I would argue that Europe is the most secular continent in history, and tragically, the major reason for secularity is reaction, powerful, visceral reaction against oppressive, corrupt state churches of the past. And Europe hasn't got over it yet. America never had that because of the First Amendment. And Tocqueville comes and he says, I'm surprised when I come to this country. This you'll remember. He said, what I see here is the spirit of religion and the spirit of liberty walk hand in hand. Faith and freedom come together. The great Irish orator, Edmund Burke, saw the same thing. In his great speech in Westminster defending the American colonists, he says, don't be surprised, you Englishmen, we Englishmen, I should say, don't be surprised that they are Englishmen, and they are the, what he called the Protestants of Protestantism. Or as he put it later, they are the dissenters of dissent. In other words, they had through the covenantalism a combination of faith and freedom, which was unique and very, very powerful. And of course, that's what's come unglued in this country since the 1960s. They used to go together. Faith and freedom understood in this way. They're part in company drastically today, and we're much closer in many ways to the French Revolution. What's the greatest weakness of covenantalism? Easy to say. God keeps his promise. We don't. We don't. And you can see this, as I said, in the Bible. You can see it down through history. So you have a lot of discussion of this in history politically. For example, Machiavelli, River Prince, again, stretching back to college days. You read the Prince, he says, the Prince may have promised this. That was yesterday. All that matters is his will today. So nobody should be forced to keep their promises. Promises mean nothing to the Prince. His will is his word, and his word today is all that counts. Promise keeping is irrelevant. And of course, you have a form of power mongering that just creates cynicism. But you can see that something simple like promise keeping is profound to a society that needs to hold together relationally. 
And I don't mean huge promises like, say, marriage till death do us part, although that's radically different. You know, the most common California marriage vow today is, I choose you, whoever it is, so long as love lasts. That's not quite till death do us part, and it's a very different sort of thing. But you can see, in the simplest thing, if I say, my dear friend Scott, see you tomorrow at 12, I don't turn up. Every day we're making intentions, small little promises. If we are people of our word, we keep it, we turn up, we say we do, we follow through on what we said we would do, etc. We are keeping our promises and we become predictable to others, we become trustworthy. And trust actually begins in the very simplest things in relationships and then spreads up into public service. Politicians who keep their words or things like that. You can see how radically simple trust is, but the simple fact is the Lord keeps his word, we humans don't. Machiavelli mocks this, David Hume, the philosopher, he mocks it too. You know, someone like John Locke who wrestles with this. You know, John Locke, much loved by Americans, but actually he's sort of mixed in terms of religious freedom. He's well known because he gave freedom of conscience to Protestants, and he even gave them, which was relatively rare in the 17th century, to Catholics, but not to atheists. And a lot of people go, oh, well, Locke was still hung up on prejudices, he hadn't quite got over them yet. But that wasn't Locke's point. It wasn't that he was still prejudiced. It was that he felt that if you had, say, freedom of conscience, you needed to have a standard of accountability. But for most Christians, that was self-help me, God. But atheists had no standard of accountability, so how could their word be held accountable, say, in a law court? And without a standard of accountability, they couldn't be trusted with freedom of conscience. But anyway, you see the point. Freedom of conscience and trust and promise-keeping are all very closely related to each other, and that, of course, is the great weakness, and put simply, trust is radically broken down in this country, almost every single level of American society. And the issue, and many issues, is not gun control. It's relationships. It's relationships that are actually in crisis, not just some of the external things that people talk about. The greatest gift, faith and freedom. The greatest weakness, we don't keep promises. Then the third point about covenantalism, the greatest requirement. If it's to be a healthy idea, what does it take? And the answer is, in one word, transmission. In other words, it has to be handed down from every generation to the next generation, or you're in trouble. Again, the rabbis with the Exodus, they point out, what did Moses talk about the night of the Exodus? Hundreds of years of slavery, terrible oppression, they're going free tonight. What does he talk about? Freedom? No. Does he talk about the promised land of milk and honey? No. Does he talk about the challenge of the howling wilderness they have to cross? No. What does Moses talk about? Children. Children. This is a night you've got to remember and pass down to your children. Again, think of the Seder, the youngest child. Why is this night different from all other nights, etc.? You can see that Jews have survived, literally, despite almost everything, because of their powerful stress on transmission. 
that of course should be Christian too. But of course that has to be American because both faith and freedom are always one generation away from losing it unless there is a living transmission from one generation to the next. Now of course all of that comes together because the founder's understanding is not the American understanding of most of the thinkers in America today. What's gone wrong? Well, you can think of three things. I want to major on one. The first is the rejection of the founders through their evils and hypocrisies supremely slavery. The second are schools of thought like Charles Beard and so on, who said, well, the framers had these hidden agendas. Virginia, plantation owners, all this high-flown stuff about freedom was really to keep the slaves down. And then you have the third type of objection coming from the so-called progressives, ranging from Woodrow Wilson to various people today, who say, well, the framers were incredible, maybe. But they were people of their generation, and we're a completely different generation, so why should we listen to them? But of course, if we listen today to the cries around America, it's the first one that is the leading problem, the evils and hypocrisies and blind spots of the framers. And of course, the Constitution, not the Declaration, the Constitution was a kind of Faustian bargain. There were many in Philadelphia who personally were strongly opposed to slavery, like Samuel Hopkins, but he spoke out and many did not. Why? They needed the votes of the southern states in order to pass. And it was, their silence, a Faustian bargain, which meant that the heart of the Constitution was an evil unaddressed and hypocrisy that was left. Of course, Lincoln tackled it, paid for his life, and was followed by the Jim Crow era. And then Martin Luther King, Pastor Martin Luther King, tackled it again, and he was in many ways the last to tackle it within an openly Christian framework. Because he was a pastor, and he preached, and in the last night of his life, he preached from the Torah, from, from the Pentateuch. But following him, Stokely Carmichael and others looked at those same evils in a completely different light. And then with the rise of feminism, which was in the early days essentially secular, and then the anti-Vietnam War movement, somewhere around 1968, 50 years ago this year, there was a fateful lurch left. And you can look at American history before that. Even the liberals were liberals with a capital L. And America was a liberal project, a project concerning freedom. But ever since then, liberalism become left liberalism. Increasingly, America is racist, imperialist, and all sorts of other nasty things which we hear very solemnly today. And you can see how it's that idea that has captured most of the university world, most of the press and media, and much of the world of entertainment. In other words, there is a profound rejection of the founder's understanding. And if you think carefully, the deepest divide in America is not <coughs> left and right, liberal, conservative, coastal, heartlanders, nationalists, globalists. Those are all important. The deepest division is actually ideas that essentially go back to 1776, which were biblically rooted, 
and ideas which essentially go back to 1789 and its heirs, with the help of people like Antonio Gransky and Michel Foucault, Herbert Marcuse and others, and they are the people shaping much of the agenda that we hear today. You've got fundamentally different views of freedom, different views of humanity and various things like that, and that's what's running through America. Which means that the challenge for the American Republic, which is a covenantal constitutional republic, will that be restored or will it be replaced? Now clearly you need leadership. You look at someone like Lincoln. He comes on the scene on the eve of the Civil War. And as he moves to Washington in 1861, he comes through Philly and he makes a great speech at Independence Hall and he says, all my ideas come from the two documents that come from this building. And he finishes quoting Psalm 137. May my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth if I am false to these ideas. And then he goes in, as you know well, to argue for what he called in the Gettysburg Address a new birth of freedom. Things have gone off the rail, but you can still count on the origins and go back to those great beginnings, addressing the evils and the blind spots with a new birth of freedom. Now, the tragedy today is I've lived in Washington 30 years. I haven't heard, apart from two people, I haven't heard any people at the highest level who are anywhere like Lincoln addressing today's issues in terms of history with a profound understanding. Maybe July the 4th type references to freedom and that sort of stuff, but I mean a profound understanding of where America comes from because what you need today in essence is a new, new birth of freedom but someone with a Lincoln-like vision to call the country back to that. And the question is, would there be sufficient resonance? We need leadership. But also, we need a clarification of freedom. Everybody talks freedom. Lincoln said this in 1860. Both sides are talking freedom. The North means one thing, the South means another thing. And the same is happening today. Everybody's talking freedom, but actually many of the views of freedom are profoundly dangerous views or unsustainable views and only the real thing will be powerful. And of course, the third thing that's profoundly needed today, transmission. Now, the old word for that was civic education. How do you create the unum so you have a, a pluribus unum through civic education? Again, I've lived in Washington and all the discussion now, sanctuary cities and walls, no one talks about civic education. How do you turn newcomers into American citizens you can't without civic education, but that transmission since the late 60s has broken down. So I would argue the issue is not really democracy. Democracy is in trouble for various reasons, but that's not really the issue. The issue is really covenantal constitutional republicanism in its profoundest sense, going back through the Reformation actually to the Book of Exodus. And the issue for a country is essentially restore or replace. And America would be a very different place if in 20 years' time it's shown that it's gone the way of 1789 and its heirs rather than back to 1776 and its heirs. Now, people would say, 
that's nostalgic, that's reactionary. But if one understands American history, the country goes forward best by going back first. And to go back to genuine roots, addressing blind spots and evils, then you go forward powerfully. Another way of putting it is, and since we're in a church, you can be open about it here, the deepest of all the issues are actually pre-political and even pre-cultural. They're actually concerned with faith. Elazar, the Jewish scholar I mentioned earlier, he gave this wonderful picture, and I'm finishing with this. He said, covenantalism comes out of the Middle East, and a feature of the Middle Eastern cultures are oases. Oases. And if you think of an oasis, he says, no oasis is larger or healthier and more luxuriant than what? The wellspring, the water at its heart. And as Elazar says, all the way to cultures like that, it is, it is the health of the faith that is the key to the health of the culture and therefore eventually the society and freedom. Anyway, enough from me. And uh, over to you for our remaining time if you want to raise any questions in any areas.